Support for the Mind, Body, Health, and Politics radio program comes from our members and the Mendocino Coast District Hospital, offering medical services including emergency room, obstetrics, intensive care, inpatient care, inpatient services, the North Coast Family Health Center, home health, ambulance services, physical therapy, oncology services, and more. More information about Mendocino Coast District Hospital and in-services is at mcdh.org. Support for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics also comes from our members in Radiant Solar Technology. Ready to help plan power systems, advise on applicable incentives, conform to current codes, and prepare for future expansion. From solar panels to high-tech battery boxes through sun, wind, and water, Radiant Solar Technology helps homes and businesses fill their renewable energy needs. Information at 485-8359 in the 707 area and at RadiantSolarTech.com. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today, we're going to have interviews with two sets of brothers, both of whom are giving us films. They've sponsored, they're bringing us films at the Mendocino Coast International Film Festival. Two sets of brothers. One of the sets will be... uh, one of the sets we'll be, inter- we'll be interviewing is Raoul Peck and his brother Hebert Peck, but Raoul will not be with us. That will be the second half of the program. The first part of the program will be with directors and producers Jed and Todd Weider. That will be about their film, God Knows Where I Am. So please stay tuned for these interviews. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. Washington, D.C. President Trump's spending blueprint seeks to balance the federal budget through unprecedented cuts to programs for poor and working-class families, effectively pitting them against older Americans who would largely escape the budget acts. In ways large and small, the budget to be released Tuesday seeks to curtail spending on poorer recipients of government largesse, The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known commonly as food stamps, would be cut by $192 billion over the next decade. Medicaid, the health program for the poor, would be cut by $800 billion. And temporary assistance for needy families, commonly known as welfare, would be cut by $21 billion. The president plans to uh, unveil this program, I believe, today. Uh, other programs being cut will be health care and food stamps, as well as student loans and disability payments. Uh, this is being called a new foundation for America greatness. Um, the program also calls for an increase in military spending of about 10 percent 
and spending more than $2.6 billion for border security, including $1.6 billion to begin work on a wall on the border with Mexico. The program also calls for huge tax reductions for the wealthy. Uh, if you have comments on this, you can call in later during the show or take any other action that you care to. Um, I bring that to you because it certainly does impact mind, body, health, and politics. Um, there's an ex uh, 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 some research that just came out in the Journal of Preventive Medicine that said that people's telomeres, the parts of DNA that we very much need, get sh and which get shorter as we age, they're significantly longer in people who exercise compared to those who are sedentary. So if you're thinking you might be around for a long time and want those DNA telomeres, there's something to be said here encouraging you to exercise. Here's something that's, uh, I don't even know what to say about this. Uh, Jordan, the country of Jordan's cabinet, has revoked a law that allows rapists to avoid jail terms if they marry their victims. Um, the logic about this is that in recent years, 159 rapists in Jordan took advantage of the law, which is cast as the lesser evil in brutally patriarchal societies. The supporters of this law argued that marriage protected the, victim, the victim's reputations and prevented honor killings. In other words, a woman gets raped in this country, then she gets killed because she's been dishonored. So they saved the victim's life by forcing her to marry the rapist. Uh, this is the world we live in, and that's why I bring this to you, because it's important that we be aware of the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's the world we live in, that's who we produce, and that's what we have to deal with. Here's something about overcoming heartbreak. A study published in the Journal of Neuroscience found that telling people who recently went through breakups that a placebo nasal spray would make them less sad while viewing photos of their exes did in fact dull their sadness, according to the brain scans. This suggests that just believing in heartbreak relief has results. Just believing in heartbreak relief has results. It's telling us that the placebo effect is so powerful that the terrible agony we feel from a heartbreak is relieved when we think we have taken a medicine that will relieve that actual heartbreak. This really informs us a great deal about what we're capable of in terms of healing all sorts of maladies. And one more thing before we go on to our interview uh, that I feel compelled to read to you because there are 15 million Americans regularly using prescription proton pump inhibitors. Uh, these are medicines that reduce stomach acid and treat what's called heartburn. It's really not heartburn. It's when stomach acid 
gets back up through the little valve between the stomach and the esophagus. And when that stomach acid comes back up into the esophagus, we feel it and it burns. And since it's in the middle of the chest, it's been referred to as heartburn, but it's really not related to the heart. It's related to this stomach acid. And 15 million of us are taking these PPIs, they're called proton pump inhibitors, to reduce stomach acid. Most unfortunately, it turns out that these proton pump inhibitors cause damage. They can cause kidney damage, they can cause dementia, infection, heart attack, and most importantly, they can cause an ischemic stroke. An ischemic stroke is is the most common type of stroke, and it's caused by an insufficiency of blood reaching part of the brain. So bottom line here, if you're taking one of these, if you're one of the 15 million people taking a proton pump inhibitor or you know someone who you've heard them talk about stomach acid and they're taking medicine, they should be talking to their physician about this because it's really, um, it's really a big deal. Uh, now to our interviews. Uh, our first interview is going to be with Jed and Ted Wider. Um, for over 16 years, these brothers have produced numerous critically and commercially successful featured documentary films. And you can Google them, Todd, T-O-D-D, and Jed, J-E-D-D, Wider, W-I-D-E-R, Google them. Their commercially successful documentary films include The King's Point, which was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short, They produced the multiple primetime Emmy Award-winning Mea Maxima Culpa, Silence in the House of God, was the subtitle. Uh, They produced the Emmy Award-nominated Semper Fi, Always Faithful, and many other films. Google them. They will be presenting their film at the Mendocino International Film Festival on June 3rd. I should note that uh, I am sponsoring that film. And the reason I'm sponsoring it is because the film, God Knows Where I Am, is about something called bipolar disorder. It's about actually about a person with bipolar disorder, formerly called manic depressive disorder. This is a sad and wrenching true story based on the diary of a treatment-resistant mentally ill woman. Treatment-resistant means just what it sounds like, resistance to treatment, to verbal treatment, and to medical treatment. This woman, by refusing to take her medicines, loses touch with reality. And the the movie is about what happens. I'm not going to say more because we have Jed and Todd with us today. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, gentlemen. Do we have them on, Michael? I just seem to have lost them. Are you with me? Can you hear us? Uh, oh, yes, we're here. Oh, great. Okay, we had a little... Thank uh, you very much. We, you're welcome. We had a little technical uh, glitch there, but now I hear you both fine. Great. So, first of all, 
You've done a, a, a many important movies raising cultural awareness on a, on a series of topics over a long period of time for which we all thank you. How did you come upon this particular story and this particular topic? Well, we had, um, Todd and I have been making films for about 17 years, and during that period of time, we've, we've produced almost the same number of, of documentary films. Um, it, most of the films that we focus on um, are socio-politically oriented. We usually gravitate towards topics that um, we feel there's an issue that uh, has not been properly explored or an issue where we really want to shine some more light. And uh, we had wanted to do a film on the severely mentally ill and the homeless um, uh, for a while. <clears throat> Todd had had a, a personal experience with a gentleman in New York City where we live who had broken into uh, the foyer of the building uh, that, uh, uh, that Todd uh, lives in uh, in the middle of winter uh, several years ago. And uh, Todd uh, didn't know what to do. He called the police. The police came. It turned out that the man um, was homeless and uh, was simply looking for warmth, uh, and he had broken in. And uh, the police asked Todd what he wanted to do with him. Todd said, please bring him to a shelter where he can get uh, some warmth and get some food. And, uh, and they put him in the police car. The car took off up one of the avenues, and several blocks up in the middle of a snowstorm, the car stopped, door opened, and the man jumped out. Uh, and uh, several weeks later... Uh, Todd saw the man again, uh, and he uh, basically was seated uh, outside on the street and seemed to be there every time Todd left his uh, left his apartment and came back. And he seemed to be there 24 hours a day. And he was urinating on himself, all over himself, and he seemed completely um, completely uh, disillusioned. Um, and he clearly uh, was suffering from some form of mental illness. And he tried to get him help. Called the police. Uh, after about 20 times calling the police, they sent a community rep down and asked Todd, what, why do you keep calling us? What, what, what's wrong with you? And he, Todd said, this man needs help. And he said, well, you know, he's not hurting anyone. And Todd said, well, he's hurting himself. He, he needs help. It's not appropriate for him to be sitting here uh, day in and day out, 24 hours a day. He clearly needs assistance. And they said, look, if you want to help him, you, you need to really change the way society deals with these types of situations, it's not a criminal justice issue. And we spoke about it, and we agreed it's not a criminal justice issue. It's a way that our society perceives um, um, the, uh, the homeless and the severely mentally ill and how, how we treat them. So we, we had set out to, to do a film on, and we came across an article that had been written in The New Yorker by a young writer, uh, Rachel Aviv, and we read that article. And that article was really about... Uh, the polemic issue of under what circumstances should we as a society be able to forcibly treat a severely mentally ill patient against their will. Um, and we set out at that moment to reach out to uh, Linda Bishop, who's the subject matter of our film, her sister in New Hampshire, and Linda Bishop's daughter, Caitlin, in New Hampshire as well. And we began to develop a relationship with them. And that really began our journey down the road of making this film. Quite a story. How did you come upon the diary? And maybe you ought to give us some background, because I'm, I said that because I previewed the film and I know about the diary, but our listeners don't know about the diary. Sure. So this is Todd. So, so, so Linda, what, what essentially happened to Linda was she was, a, um, she was misdiagnosed initially with schizophrenia, but actually she had bipolar with psychosis. As you know, a small 
percentage of patients with bipolar suffer from a severe form of bipolar, and they have psychotic, a psychotic sort of element to their illness, and they can have uh, paranoid ideation and sort of delusionality in their thinking. So she, she had that, and uh, so she was in and out of hospitals for about 10 years and in and out of prisons as well for 10 years, because unfortunately in our country, prisons have become one of the primary treatment facilities for the severely mentally ill. Um, but anyway, she was in and out of those places, and on her last admission, she was unconditionally discharged after having been committed for a certain period of time. She was able to uh, procure an earlier release, due to circumstances that are raised in the film. And she wanders uh, 10 miles uh, up the road from the hospital, uh, breaks into an abandoned farmhouse that reminds her of a, uh, an idyllic farmhouse from her youth. And there she spends the next four months living off of rainwater and apples during a particularly cold, uh, one of the coldest winters in New Hampshire on record. Uh, and uh, so that that is what happens to her. But during that period of time, she keeps a a diary of these experiences. And the diary is uh, very intelligently written. It's, it's quite beautiful. It's very poignant. It's also very disturbing. Um, and it's intermittently somewhat coherent and intermittently not coherent and filled with paranoid ideation and whatnot. And so the diary provides a, an unusual and unique insight into the workings of Linda Bishop's head while she's going through this uh, sort of experience and really does provide an unusual point of view that that is not a typical point of view that one one might uh, see certainly a layperson would not be uh, able to see such a point of view you know unless they could see the, this kind of film you know but ordinarily in, in life when we're presented artistic images of those that are mentally ill usually they are created by those that are outside of mental illness you know people that treat or people that are looking in on the mentally ill um, so you get a sort of uh, this is the sane world's view of what this mentally ill person thinks. It's unusual to get a first-person perspective. So that's part of what the film presents. What, what do you want to share with us about what you learned by reading this diary? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm a physician as well, so I've spent a fair amount of time with uh, quite, quite mentally ill people, actually, and ah. um, I, I think that what, people, what, what one can learn from, from reading or hearing the diary read or, or experiencing documents like this is that there is a certain humanity that binds us all together. Uh, at the end of the day, we're all human beings, despite our actions in life and despite the circumstances with which we find ourselves. And also, despite the, the broken neurochemistry from which we might suffer from, we still, there is a certain humanity, regardless of who you are, that binds us all together. Uh, and I think it's important to try to access and remember that humanity, because uh, in my opinion, it's that humanity that, that, that sort of can help us solve a lot of these social problems that, that we're presented with. You know, we live in an incredibly wealthy and powerful, uh, rich nation that, that is actually historically quite generous. You know, not always, but generally the United States can be very, very generous. I mean, look at our intervention in World War II and what we accomplished in Europe and the European theater and in the Asian theater. I mean, we, 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 we sort of saved the world at that point, literally. Uh, and then we, we gave very generously after the war in terms of rebuilding cultures and societies and whatnot. So we, we have the, the point is we have the capacity, certainly, to be incredibly generous, yet we are we live among hundreds of thousands, literally, of severely mentally ill and homeless people. In our own city in New York, where we're from, the mayor claims that there are 65,000 homeless people, and this is a quote-unquote progressive mayor, 
Um, and I, I would probably argue there's many more. Certainly, it seems like there's many more. We've both lived here our whole lives, and I think the homeless problem has not has never been worse, certainly in our lifetime. And the majority of these people are severely mentally ill. Whether you come to homelessness through mental illness or you come to it through economic deprivation, two or three days on the streets of New York and you're clinically depressed, and there's no way around that. And, you know, so, so you have a, you, you know, you've got tens of thousands of people wandering around New York City, many of whom are in delusions and speaking to people that aren't there and hearing voices in their heads and endangering themselves and certainly endangering others. And um, yet we, and we have apartments in New York City that sell for tens of millions of dollars and people with untold wealth in New York and elsewhere. And I just, there is this fundamental disconnect, I think, that if you have if you have such tremendous wealth and the and the capacity to be so generous, why is it then that we uh, collectively as a society allow for the, the the sort of existence of this of this problem? Why haven't we done a better job addressing these issues? So that that's what I hope people take away from the film. You hope they take away a, a greater understanding of the breadth and depth of this problem. Yes, and I also hope they take away a greater sense of empathy for those that are suffering uh, from these types of conditions. It's easy to walk by a, a severely mentally ill homeless person in the cities or towns that one might live in and ignore them because, after all, they, they're a nuisance often, and they get in your way as you're walking to work or trying to catch a cab, and there they are standing in front of your house, you know, and they make strange noises, and they, and they don't look like everyone else. And it's easy to at least on the surface, become irritated or bothered by them. But they have, they have the humanity that all of us have. And they're deeply suffering often, and they're very, very vulnerable, unfortunately, because they don't have access to, to political power and money. They have essentially no lobby. So they are the, the – if there's ever an underrepresented segment of our society, it's got to be that segment. Um, and I, I think that what I would like people to take away is a greater sense of empathy for those – that are suffering from severe mental illness, and also those that are that are homeless. According to uh, my Google research, approximately one in five Americans suffers from uh, mental illness each year. Um, when they say that, we're talking about 42.5 million Americans. One in five suffer sure. from suffer from what they call enduring conditions, such as bipolar, the subject of your film, depression, and schizophrenia. Uh, these were statistics released in February of 2014. Those are large numbers. Yes. And what are we doing? What's your opinion of what we're, how we're handling that and what we're doing across the country? You heard what I just read about what the president is doing with regard to programs for these people. He's cutting back. Well, the unfortunate thing is that we all pay the price for this. I mean, the reality is, is we can ignore and cut funding and do all the kind of things. But at the end of the day, we pay the price uh, psychically, ethically, morally, as well as economically. Look at the case of Linda Bishop. She spent over a year in an inpatient facility only to be discharged unconditionally with no sort of release plans. So a, a year plus in a state-run facility in New Hampshire probably cost, because she, by this point she had Medicaid, because she was on public assistance. So she, I'm sure, had Medicaid. Certainly she got Medicaid when she was put into that hospital. So I, I'm certain that, you know, at, at the very least, 
we probably, as a society, because Medicaid is being paid for by all of us, several hundred thousand dollars for her care alone. And as you'll see in the film, I think everyone would agree that that was a complete treatment failure. So the last thing we should be doing is unwinding the social service safety net, which frankly is porous as it is. So to, so to, to, for, to make further holes in that social service safety net and unwind it further, I mean, it's cause and effect. You know, what we're going to see is more dire circumstances on the street, more people with mental illness not getting treated, and more secondary outcomes of severely mentally ill people attempting to uh, move around a society that doesn't particularly care for or treat them well. I mean, you, you look at the mass shooting problem, and I know everyone talks about gun control as a way of dealing with this problem, but there's another side to dealing with the problem, and that is that without question, all the people that were, were guilty of these types of crimes were mass people are killed, uh, unless it's some, you know, crazed political fanatical act, which I would also argue is mentally ill as well, frankly. But certainly the, the, the one-offs, like, you know, the James Holmes in, 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 the, in the Colorado shooting or the Adam Lanza in the Newtown shooting and shootings like that where you have these sole, you know, generally young men um, that are usually severely mentally ill, in the case of James Holmes, it was probably uh, schizophrenia. In the case of, of Lanza, it was severe uh, Asperger's, an antisocial personality, and a sociopathy. Um, th- these kinds of, of situations are not going to get better if we, if we just unwind our whole so- social surface safety net. I mean, they're, they're going to get worse. They're not going to get better. So, you know, you, as you mentioned, you have vast numbers of Americans that are suffering there is still an unfortunate stigma in our country about mental illness. It's not treated the same as other diseases, and it certainly should be. It's, 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 a, it's a set of circumstances that lead to, you know, broken and faulty neurochemistry in the brain. And it is not, in my mind, there's not much difference between that and a broken pancreas that doesn't make insulin or, or, or a broken heart that's clogged up and doesn't, and, and doesn't feed itself properly and you wind up with chest pain and you have a heart disease. I mean, these are, these are constellations of symptoms that are associated with physical illness. Mental illness is a physical illness. The physical portion of you that's affected is your brain. It's an organ. And, you know, I just, I, we've got this strange still, this strange sort of stigma that sort of follows treating mentally ill people around, and it doesn't help. It doesn't, it doesn't help. It marginalizes those people, and, and it makes things worse. So it, it is unfortunate to hear to hear news that, like like the news that you just read, I mean that of course is is worrisome. You know that's not the direction I think that we should we should be heading in. You know, what you're talking about with regard to the cutting back on programs for the mentally ill, particularly the poor mentally ill. I mean, especially the poor mentally ill, is that they're going to be hitting the streets even more, which is definitely accurate. But you mentioned something earlier in the program, which is also going to happen which is more and more of these people will be going into jails and prisons. Because the more of them that we put out on the street, the more there's going to be desperation, and the more we're going to have some variation of Les Miserables, where they're going to be stealing a loaf of bread or something like that to get by, and they're going to end up in jail. That's right. Yes, and the jails are already overcrowded because of another socially inappropriate program that we have where we're incarcerating um, millions of young black men for minor uh, drug offenses, particularly marijuana, and we're all aware of that, and and what's yeah. gone on, what's gone on over the years, uh, because 
there really are three or four groups in this country who are at the way bottom of the list of being taken care of by ourselves as a people. And one of them are the mentally, one of the groups is the mentally ill, um, the poor, definitely, and what we're going to hear about in the second half of this program are how the blacks have been treated, uh, also a, a major stain on the American character. Um, but the last group are drug addicts and alcoholics, and there's been a tremendous stigma, and it took a long time. We're finally getting around to the place where, people, where drug addicts and alcoholics, possibly because there are so many of them, We've, uh, we've removed a lot of the stigma, and being in treatment now for a, a chemical dependence is, uh, I think, much less stigmatized, in, in, really in part because almost every family in the United States has been touched by some form of chemical dependence, alcoholism or drug addiction. And so when you have mm-hmm. such a widespread, uh, a widespread uh, prevalence of some form of disorder, well, then there's going to be a certain amount more acceptance, whereas the group that you're talking about in your movie that you're describing and portraying in your movie, the mental, mentally ill, uh, they, they have been second citizens. But when I read now, uh, and, or I'm reminded now by reading, I should say, that one in five Americans uh, is touched by some form of mental illness, or more than touched, I'm hoping the stigma will be reduced just by the by the great numbers. What do you think? Well, I, I, I would hope so. I, I think, I, you know, I, I honestly think a lot of this comes down to leadership and role models and whatnot and education. Um, and, and at the end of the day, I, I've always felt, I think Jed and I always, have always believed that the key to this, to solving many of these problems, certainly I think among the problems that you just mentioned, uh, is 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 empathy is a basic the basic human emotion of empathy where you enable yourself to see the the other person in a in a clearer way and see life through their shoes uh, you know and be more open to to you know if someone says look I'm the object of discrimination and they're black and you're white try looking at it for at least a second to, to see yourself in their in their shoes for a moment for a moment at least you know to try to see the world in a different way you know a person that mentally ill, like the gentleman I found in, in the place that I live that was severely mentally ill and homeless. Um, you know, and, and at the end of the day, you know, he had, he had broken and entered my home. But at the same time, he simply was freezing to death, you know? I mean, he came in because he was cold. He didn't steal anything. He didn't want anything of mine. He just wanted warmth. You know, he wanted literally to get out of it. It was probably 10 degrees outside. It was a, the middle of February. It was freezing cold in New York, and it was snow, snowing, and there was a foot of snow on the ground. And he was just simply seeking shelter in, in, in a similar way to the Les Miserables story that you do mention. I mean, you know, these social issues have been around a long time, you know. And I, you know, it, it, I mean, that's an interesting novel to look at, actually, because there were certain characters. There weren't many, but there were a couple of characters that populated, uh, you know, the, 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 the Victor Hugo universe in that story that, did, that had the capacity for empathy and tried to help. You know, there were, there were few. There weren't many, but there were a few that had the capacity for empathy. And, I mean, I would argue that, you know, it is empathy that we need generally as a society and also individually to better grasp and try to begin at least to solve some of these social problems that so afflict us. The, the, uh, the town that you're coming to, 
for the Mendocino International Film Festival is the town of Mendocino. Nine miles north of Mendocino is the city of Fort Bragg, also on the coast. The city of Fort Bragg, uh, in the last few years, has allowed a, uh, a program for transitional housing. Transitional housing is housing for people who are coming off living on the streets, coming off being unsheltered, have a little money to pay for rent, but are not ready to get a full apartment or a home to rent. So it's called transitional housing. And it's rooms in some kind of a, the, the, the housing consists of rooms in some kind of a facility. The city of Fort Bragg allowed this program to take over a hotel right in the heart of the city, right in the heart of, of Fort Bragg. And many of the citizens are very proud of this. At the same time, there was an uproar by business owners because there is concern that by having this facility right in the heart of town, there would be a lot of, quote, those people who would be, unquote, who would be hanging around the facility and therefore would have a negative effect on business. And you, you alluded to this in a poignant way uh, when you were talking earlier by saying, you know, it's inconvenient, you're getting into your cab or you're coming to your house and there are these folks and so on and so on. So that's what the business leaders are saying. And the city council has maintained their position to allow this facility. And as I said, many are proud. I'm certainly one of them that are proud that the city is taking this position. But what it also brought to light is the economics of the situation. And that's, that's a lot of what we're dealing with, isn't it? That these folks, yes. these folks at the lower end of the economic spectrum are a threat to business. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We, we've, we've seen, that's a good point, I mean, we've seen that all across the country as we've screened this film um, at festivals, but also theatrically, which the film is, um, which, which, which the film is underdoing now. Um, it's, it's, it's in theaters around the country. Um, but when, when we've gone to many cities uh, around the U.S., we've encountered um, during the Q&As exactly the same thing you just mentioned which are programs in certain areas that, um, uh, that politicians um, are pushing either to open or to close, depending upon where they are, and a lack of community support uh, for those programs or centers in areas where people are looking to either revitalize areas or looking to, um, looking to uh, undergo significant real estate development. Yeah. And it's a very serious economic issue. Yes. And it, you know, it, it plays into what, what you spoke to, what Todd spoke to, which unfortunately is the marginalization of uh, the mentally ill and the homeless uh, in our society. And it's, it's not appropriate. I mean, we as a society absolutely need to do better. Excuse me, gentlemen, I'm going to take a sidebar. Abar, are you on the line with us? Uh, yes, I am now. Abar, you're here? Yes, I am. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. I'll be right with you. Uh, gentlemen, okay. we're going we're gonna to have to uh, uh, conclude 
this section of the uh, of the interview, Jed and Todd Weider. I want to thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, you, you're very welcome. Their film, God Knows Where I Am, will be aired at the International Mendocino Film Festival on June 3rd. Come and see it. I'm now going to introduce Abar Peck. He and his brother Raul Peck are bringing to the film festival their latest film, I Am Not Your Negro. This Oscar-nominated film is based on author, playwright, poet, and social critic James Baldwin's account of the assassinations of three of his friends, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King. This film is a journey into black history which connects the civil rights movement to our present Black Lives Matter movement. And this film challenges the very definition of what America stands for. The film was made by Abar Peck and his brother Raul. As I said, these brothers have a long career in bringing films to the public. He has uh, co-produced the Academy Award-nominated film, I Am Not Your Negro. That's the one that we're talking about today. He's also co-produced the documentary film Fatal Assistance, 2013. He's produced a video essay, which is very important. It's called Little Abar, about the birth of his son with Down syndrome. You really want to research this film. It's been shown on public television and it's at uh, festivals, and I think you can find it. It's called Little Abar, but it's it's spelled H-E-B-E-R-T. Abar and his brother have produced many films. You'll find them on Google quite easily. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Abar. Oh, hi, Richard. Thank you so much uh, for inviting uh, me. Um, I, I must uh, add something, though. Um, uh, we have a very important uh, partner in this endeavor, which is uh, Rémi Groletti, who is also um, a producer on on most of Raoul's film and has been an important uh, part of our process. Thank thank you, Abar. Please, yes, please spell both those names. So if listeners want to Google your third partner, they'll be able to. Would you spell it? Okay. Uh, Remy is R-E-M-I. Yes. And uh, his last name is G-R-E-L-L-E-T-Y. G R E L L E T Y. You can you can Google Remy Grilletti along with Abar and Raoul Peck on Google. Yeah, and so, uh, of course I'm going to tease you and how to spell but pronounce my name. Um, it's it's always difficult for folks to do it, so I usually tell them think of it's it's a bear. So think of a lion, a tiger, a bear. A bear. <laughs> Thank you. Enchanté. <laughs> so please um, give us some background and tell us about your film that's going to be shown on June 3rd at the uh, International Film Festival in Mendocino. Well, um, it really started when uh, Raul had just finished, I believe, a film for uh, HBO uh, on the Rwandan uh, genocide, which is called Sometimes in April, uh, which I I recommend highly. 
Um, so he had just finished that film, and uh, and by then he was interested to uh, tackle Baldwin because Baldwin had always been, since uh, he uh, being a young adult, um, he, Baldwin had become kind of a companion to Raoul in terms of of his uh, his work, his body of work, and Baldwin had made a big impression on him, and so. You know, it was maybe, let's say, 20 years later, so Raoul felt that he was ready to, to do something uh, about Baldwin. At the time, Baldwin had kind of uh, not been a center stage in our lives uh, here in America and around the world, um, and almost um, as if his, uh, you know, he was kind of passe in, in a lot of people's mind, where as Raoul really believed that actually uh, Baldwin needed to be in, in our lives. And so, um, I mean, that was not the case for Baldwin's contemporary uh, uh, um, contemporaries. Uh, people knew of his influence and how much of a great writer and, and social critic and uh, social activist he had been and continued to be. So... Um, so then the first thing was to uh, try to get the rights to Baldwin's work, or at least to get maybe something. He didn't know at first what he wanted to get or what kind of access he wanted to have. Uh, but the, a priori, the first thing to do was to contact the Baldwin estate, uh, which when he did, he did get an answer back from, from the estate saying, yes, why don't you come and meet us in D.C.? And uh, the person he met who uh, uh, ran the Baldwin estate uh, is uh, Gloria Carifa Smart, who um, really is uh, James Baldwin's youngest sister and for years during uh, Baldwin's life had you know, been working and assisting him administratively with his affairs and traveling with him. Um, and uh, when her brother passed away, she uh, became in charge of his estate. And so when she met Raoul, um, they really immediately clicked. And she turns out that Gloria had seen uh, Raoul's work, and um, and particularly a, a movie he had done called Lumumba on the life of uh, the Congolese uh, prime minister. Patrice Lumumba, who had been uh, murdered in uh, in Africa, in the Congo, at the time, and so uh, from that point on, uh, Gloria kind of became a, I, I like to say, like a guardian angel to the project, um, um, and she uh, and the estate gave access, gave role access to all of Baldwin's works, so which is fairly unusual in in, in our field. Um, as you know, you can get an option maybe on the book or maybe on an article, and, but in this case, it was a complete access, which did have, um, um, uh, it, it was an incredible opportunity, but also uh, heavy <laughs> for for a filmmaker to have this kind of access, because that also meant that, you know, no one else could have access to the material until uh, Raul was done, at least for for film work or anything like that. And so, um, I don't know if you know this, but the project itself took about 
ten, close to 10 years to complete. I had no idea. Yeah, and so the first uh, four years when Raul did get uh, uh, the um, the authorization, the rights to, to do something, he wasn't, he and he did tell this to, to Gloria initially, he didn't know how he was going to approach this story and how he's going to do it in terms of whether it was going to be a documentary or a narrative or a sort of mixed media, but uh, that uh, it was an important project to get uh, Baldwin back into center stage. And so it wasn't until maybe uh, four years into the project. Now, mind you, uh, you know, Raul was doing other work in the meantime. Uh, Amy was helping doing other work in the meantime. I was doing other work, So, but this project was still moving um, at a at a um, steady pace um, until so Raul who always works from um, reality always his projects are based on reality um, was looking for really the right entry into the story and he didn't up to that point he didn't have any idea on how he wanted to to tell uh, the story and what story he wanted to tell. So one day, um, it was at a time when Gloria was also putting James Baldwin's work in order um, and looking at, you know, organizing all of his all of his files, all of his uh, material. And uh, one day she gave these uh, 30 pages to Raul and said, here, Raul, I think you'll know what to do with these, with this. And it turned out those those thirty pages were was a a letter that James Baldwin had written to his uh, literary agent about the next book he wanted to write, uh, why he wanted to write it, how he was going to write it, the importance of this book uh, for him and also for America, and that it was going to be this definitive book on. Uh, race in America, and also he wanted to talk about um, his three friends that had been murdered and, and, and what that meant to him. And uh, finally, he also wanted to talk about the kind of the the making of, of the image of the American Negro, the making of, of, of the nigger, if you will, uh, especially through imagery and through Hollywood films. You know, at the end of so, my introduction, um, uh, Hebert, I said that the film challenges the definition of what America stands for. Yes. And I'd like you to yes. speak to that. I'd like to, you to speak to, the, to this issue of blackness in America. I appreciate the introduction and how you got there. Now let's get into the meat of it. Well, I mean, um, one of the things that uh, Baldwin was always uh, clear about is that um, as a society, um, um, it's as if, not as if, there, there, there's, there's two histories that are being told. So that on the one end you have, in terms of the American Negro, um, has one perception, one story of America, one history of America. And then you have the larger um, uh, white uh, America has a different perception of what the story of America is because they don't live in the same environment. They don't have the same experiences. 
and so that having that kind of of uh, of experience um, where you don't know what's happening on the other side is really a detriment not only to it's a detriment to both sides and and creates the the uh, the pro- the societal problems that we are experiencing till till this day and so that in reality there's only one history of America which is not necessarily a pretty story but it is the story we have and that it is important to tell that entire story and uh go ahead hey bear have you or your brother ever been pulled over by the police for no other apparent reason than the color of your skin (laughs) well uh yes i have um and uh i've also had the experience of of uh being in environments where uh, I probably to this day, uh, and I'm not, uh, I feel that I'm fairly privileged as a black man in America. You know, I have, have I've been able to uh, go to college and have uh, 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 a master's degree, and I've, I'm able to live um, comfortably. Um, so you would imagine that I would have it made, but I still find myself in situations where uh, I, I feel uncomfortable. Um, I also feel that I have to make others feel comfortable by my presence, which is, can be tiring. Um, and so, um, so you can imagine someone who doesn't have the, the privilege that I, I think I have um, a living every day. Um, so yeah, those are, those are actual real experiences for, for, for most, uh, people of color, I would say, but also it's the same for if you're gay, if you're a woman, it's a, you know, these are things that, um, you just accept as part of your daily lives and you have to know how to ne- negotiate daily. And, um, and yeah, absolutely. One time I was having a meeting at my home a group with a group of friends, and one of whom was the vice chancellor of the University of California at Berkeley. And I had moved to a new home. Uh, he drove up to the home. Uh, when he got to the, near the entrance, I watched him from the window, and he turned around, uh, thinking he was at the wrong place, I guess. And he didn't come back for a half hour. And then when he came back, he, he made it into the house, and... I said, what happened? And he said he thought he was in the wrong place. And I said, did you knock on any neighbor's door, to my neighbor's door, to find out where I was? And he said, absolutely not. And I said, what do you mean, absolutely not? He said, Richard, I didn't want to see the expression on their face when a black man knocked on their door at night. This is the vice chancellor of the University of California. And, Absolutely. And, and to this day, uh, my skin tingles when I tell that story because that story says a lot, just like in your privileged situation with a great education and making a good living, you tell a similar story. Yeah, so you can imagine someone who doesn't have, doesn't live with that sort of privilege of that I, I feel that I have, and it, it's it's a horrible uh, experience, a daily experience, and also it's a it it affects you psychologically. It it, it really uh, grades you and and uh, works on your self esteem. Works, you know. So it's 
it's um, it's a horrible state of, of being in a sense. It's um, a horrible so state to, of being on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And so, but you learn to to live with it, yeah. and because ultimately, as human beings, that's what we do. We turn to we tend to adapt the best we can because uh, you know we. <laughs> We have family, we have friends, we want to um, have a, a good existence. So, uh, but those realities, you, you, you know them, they're real. It's a real experience. And the first half of this program, I interviewed uh, uh, Jed and Todd Wider on their film, also at the film festival like yours, on their film, God Knows Where I Am, which is about a uh, bipolar person. And we talked about the fact that one in five Americans suffers from mental illness and there is a stigma on mental illness. There is this huge stigma on people of color based on the fact that this organ called the skin has a different color on it. Nothing more based on that. And then you just mentioned gays and you mentioned women. It doesn't leave many others. <laughs> well, look, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's horrible that um, that it is the way it is. But I, I think one of the things that Baldwin really says well is that um, it 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 is our responsibility as uh, the majority as as black folks, as white folks, as uh, whoever we are, it is our responsibility to decide how we want to to go forward. Uh, because it is, it, you know, it, we are living in the same space. And so we either all make it together or we don't make it together as a whole. It, you can't, it's, it's never... Um, um, it, it's, uh, I guess it's a closed system. So whatever you do really at some level affects, uh, affects you, whatever you think, uh, um, uh, whatever your behavior somehow has repercussions somehow in the rest of this closed system. So imagine if it's, if you do that and if you uh, I, I don't know if that makes sense to you what I'm saying but it's it's uh, every everything um, uh, the larger group let's say uh, uh, the, let's say uh, in Baldwin's case when he said at the end of the movie um, it's up to you you white folks to come up with with a solution because I didn't create the nigger I am not a nigger you created the nigger, so then you need to know why you created him in the first place, because that's where that conversation needs to start, and uh, hopefully the solution needs to be found in answering that question. The, the so, only way the only way I question Baldwin on this, and I, I I feel it's maybe impudent of me to even question him because I think so highly of him and his political political activism, but it, which is the leaving it to the white folks because the reality is. The white folks are the minority on the planet. White is not the majority skin color on the planet. Color, that, is, color is the majority skin color on the planet. <laughs> that may be the case. And yet, uh, 
And yet, yes, exactly, exactly, so, and, and that's but, when we come to that's when we come to a, to Darwinian capitalism, which is <laughs> resulting right. right, which resulting in a situation where a minority have power over a majority. That's correct. Something that's that correct. Uh, so, so, and also I think for Baldwin and even for um, uh, Martin Luther King and uh, Malcolm X, um, towards the end of their lives, they were. Uh, their position, uh, as you see in the film, you know, became closer and closer because to them they were moving away from the race issue as being the main issue. Right. For them, it was becoming clearer that the main issue was really class. Yes, it's and, class. And, and we'll, I've got to stop exactly. you there. I'm getting uh, signals here, Hebert. Are you going to be coming to the film festival? Unfortunately, I won't be able to. Okay, because uh, I was and, looking forward to yeah. meeting you, but perhaps okay, another okay. time. Sure. Thank you so much. This is uh, our interview with Bear Peck. He and his brother Raul have produced and directed the movie I Am Not Your Negro, along with Remy Grelite, I remembered. And it's an Oscar-nominated film. You want to come to the film festival on June 3rd and see it. It's a film that challenges the very definition of what America stands for. It's an important film. Thank you so much, Bear. I appreciate your being with us today. Thank you, Richard. And thank you all, dear listeners, for joining me today for this broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff. Thank you all. And to my dear friend, Mike Delora, our in-studio engineer, please tune in again on the 9th I believe it is of June for our next broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth working hard for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm.